This is an ABC podcast. I suppose for me, human beings fascinated me for a long time. And then when I kind of realised there wasn't a lot of hope for humanity, (laughs) I became less interested in faces. I also think the portraiture, as I said, it was very much wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. From photographing the Queen unvarnished and overexposed to flesh-coloured stockinged embryonic forms that are vaguely human, Polly Borland is the punk, offbeat Australian photographer who made it big and then changed direction. Now in her early 60s, she's constantly remaking herself as an artist. This is The Art Show coming to you from the far north coast of New South Wales, Araqua country where us Bunjalung mobs say Jingiwala. Hello, Daniel Browning with you. She's photographed the Queen close up, but you'll never meet a more genuine, down-to-earth person. And also, she's mad fun. Polly Borland is finally making the work she's always wanted to make, truly freed of all the limitations, the rigid subjects and the gargantuan egos of portrait photography. <laughs> it's more this uncon... You know, I'm just like, oh, oh, that would be good. You've heard of Jackson Pollock, but have you ever heard of Janet Sobel? Being untrained is kind of what allowed her in. But then when her work started to look very avant-garde, she wasn't allowed to kind of develop along the same line because then it did look very modern. We find out why this Ukrainian refugee and Brooklyn grandmother challenges the foundational myth of one of modern art's icons. Stay with me here on The Art Show. I don't need to tell you that lockdown changed a lot of things. Our working lives, irrevocably so. Well, same goes for expat Australian photographer Polly Borland, who found herself unable to return home to LA at the height of the pandemic, when Donald Trump revoked the green cards of non-American residents. While she's best known for photographing the famous and infamous from Trump to Silvio Berlusconi to Nick Cave to Gwendolyn Christie, Polly Borland has long been experimenting with the surreal on the side. Faceless bodily forms are twisted in her soft sculptures, best described as either embryonic or monstrous. And now she's collaborating with public art Goliath, UAP, to turn them into aluminium sculptures. I caught up with Polly, who's here for Art Byron, a feast of visual art curated by a local, the subject of the portrait that won this year's Archibald Prize. My name's Polly Borland. Um, and I'm sitting in Byron Bay on Bunjalung country with you. What made you decide to come back to Byron? Because I I know you got locked down here uh, in 2020. Well, really, it was because Carla Dickens, who's the curator of Art Byron, she had asked me when we would, had started talking about it when I was living here. I lived here for a year and a half, unintentionally got stuck here in COVID, the most beautiful place in the world to get stuck. And um, she asked me to be one of the exhibitors in Byron Art Byron. It seems like that was a long time ago now. I left, I think, Byron Bay last July and went back to Los Angeles. I probably didn't really want to hop on a plane, not because I didn't want to come back, but just because it's a long way. It takes a lot out of me. And now I'm here, and I'm really here for Carla, but it was interesting. Yesterday when I got off the plane, I just thought, oh, my God, I love being back here. And that was literally just getting off the plane and breathing the air. 
and I love the climate. And then when we got stuck here for a year and a half, I thought this is the place I'm going to retire to. Not that I feel like I'm ever going to retire, but I definitely want to come back here and live. You did write a really interesting essay uh, about your encounter with the late Queen Elizabeth. Your pains to say, I'm not a royalist, I'm not a royalist. And you wrote some really amazing words about, you know, the photograph is a photograph. Uh, it can be propaganda for a killing machine. You know, what does this encounter even mean? I mean, how do you understand it now that she's passed away? You know, the way I figure it was when I was growing up in Australia, everywhere I went, there was these stock photos of the Queen framed. There was always a photo of the Queen. And I never really connected it to anything. It was just there they were. And now I realise that it was reinforcing the idea of the monarchy and it was a colonial tool. So I don't believe in those hierarchies and I definitely, in terms of the atrocities enacted upon the First Nations people, in the name of imperialism and colonialism and monarchy and God, you know, all those things actually bundled together. But, um, and I just remember meeting her and I just thought I'd photograph many famous people and I remember thinking, oh, she's just going to be another famous person. But then I met her and it was like I was totally thrown and literally went into this altered state. But then I realised that was conditioning. It was sort of a brainwashing. So when you photographed the Queen, you only had five minutes. Was it Windsor Castle or Buckingham Palace? Where'd you, where'd you do it? Yeah, Buckingham Palace. We had all the time we wanted to set up. So we set up and then I had a little argument with the minder who was timing it. And so he told me to talk to the Queen about what I was going to do. Well, of course, because I was in a disassociated state, I, I, when I eventually found my voice, I just started raving at her about what I was going to do. And then all of a sudden he yells two minutes or two and a half minutes and I hadn't taken one roll of film. So I really had to You're still working 35mm at this no, stage? No, this was six by seven on a tripod. I mean, it was a nightmare. And so I took two rolls of film, one on each setup. I don't even know how I did that. And, um, and got two good shots. So that was all I needed anyway. So yeah. But um, I always felt as a photographer I was sort of bearing witness to things and I think that's okay as long as I retain some kind of detachment. And at that moment meeting the Queen there was certainly not really any detachment, there wasn't really any rational thought. But later it's good for me to realise that my photo has been used as a mythologising, further mythologising and glamorising uh, the idea of the monarch and the monarchy. So... I don't get that. What I see in that portrait is actually the, a person. In all the other portraits of the Queen, no one got up that close. I mean, it was almost like a passport photo. You like zoomed right in. And 
in a kind of disregard for the iconography of raw photography or the conventions of raw photography, you went right in up close and she just seemed like anyone else's grandmother. I don't know. It's like, like my nan had a passport photo taken. I'm not saying it's a fine portrait, but it's nothing like anyone else's. No, it isn't, and it shows the wrinkles and everything, but she's better looking in my photo than she is in most. And actually, the other thing that struck me when I met her was how rich she looked. And I'd never... She'd always looked pretty dowdy, except, of course, when she's in her crown and her fur. Or, the state opening of Parliament yeah, and the gold coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But outside of that, usually photos present her as not being really particularly glamorous. I think my photo's quite glamorous. I also think it's an ode to Andy Warhol and pop culture um, and pop art. So, but I think, I mean, I appreciate you seeing the photo like that and I'd like to think that I'd humanised her, but then I'm humanising a symbol of a, oppression. So is, is that a good thing? You've been bearing witness for a long, long time. There's a sense that I get, you know, looking over the course of your work and, and more recently of an exhaustion, almost as if you're finished with the, the human form or finished with the face or finished with the portrait, is that there is a sense of that kind of you've, you've almost exhausted it or it's just no longer interesting to you? The human face? Well, I think for me, I mean, I, I have said this before, the portraiture became creatively limiting. So then I moved in the early 2000s, probably after the Queen, more into my own personal work, which was more about me creating what went into the photo. So that's really what it became about. So I started making costumes, putting, disguising people in costumes. But as I went on with that, you know, there was Smudge series, there's been all these different series. As I got through to the Morph series, which was shown in 2018 at the NGV, there's also a book, Morph book by Perimeter Editions, but that's now what's being shown in at Byron Bay School of Art. That was all about even further disguising the human form or not even disguising the human form, sort of abstracting it and kind of getting away from anything that was identifiably human. So I suppose for me human beings fascinated me for a long time and then when I kind of um, realised that there wasn't a lot of hope for humanity. <laughs> I became less interested in the faces. I also think the portraiture, as I said, it was very much wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You know, you go in, you shoot a portrait, you get them in a good mood, you get them in a bad mood, you make all these judgments about who they really are. You never really know, you know, we're all got dark and light in us. Some people have got more dark than light. I think it, this sort of abstraction or the kind of trying to get away from I, the identifiable human elements in my work by creating these costumes is really talking much more about a pre-state of consciousness. So I'm sort of 
I suppose it's back to the womb almost. Because the, the, the morphs have a skin-like, sometimes are finished in that beautiful kind of, I guess it's a white person's skin, like a, a fleshy kind of pink. Colour, yeah, yeah. That, they're all stocking fabric. So there's a sense of like this might be, uh, a, a, you yes. know, pri a, a, a primitive form of, of, yes. of, of yeah. life. Exactly. And I think all my work really has been about sort of existential, almost like the shock of being alive and then the shock of knowing that we're going to die. So it's kind of, and you know, if... if if you get rid of the human elements and go back to the sort of womb-like state or the pre-conscious, hopefully, you know, it's a safer space to inhabit. Uh, you know, because it's frightening being alive. But anyway, my art, I hope, gives something to someone. But, you know, I basically do it for my own mental well-being. <laughs> really? Well, look, I think the reason I could take a good portrait, and by the way, I never even really thought about, I didn't really want to take portraits. It came just naturally to me. I think because I'm a people person, people used to interest me a lot. And I do like having a connection with people. Hopefully that comes through in my work in some way, whether it's about humanness or non-humanness or, you know, trying to shed humanness. Hopefully there is a humanity in the work that people can relate to. But I've never really done it, my own work anyway, for I do what I like. There's that sense of what you call personal work, where I think the most experimentation and the most... I think the most art happens. It's not that the portraits aren't art, but they're you know often jobs that you've done for you know New York, New York Times or the Times uh, in London. So you you got a job. You're there with a reporter, and you know you take a take a portrait. But when you get into the realm of like you know these figures that are just stripped and disfigured in some way, or reduced to just the morphic outline of of, of, a, of a person. And when you move from that to the actual morph, the sculptural form, which is which kind of mimics the human but isn't human, that's when it really gets my attention. Yeah, well, the you're talking about the sculpture. Yeah. That's a progression too from it's almost like a, an image that's slowly disintegrating. Yeah, and popping out of the photo into the real world. But, again, that was to do with Carla Dickens and so talking about now We're talking about moving from the uh, 2D, from the, from the photographic portrait to a sculpture. So that but happened that here. That happened in Byron Bay too. Like that, basically, Carla and I were driving to this art dinner, in the, literally in the middle of nowhere in, outside of Byron. And I was talking about I needed this specialist sort of framing and where would I go and... And she said, oh, go to UAP, you know, everyone uses UAP. And I'm like, oh, OK, I'll, I'll give them a ring. Anyway, we got to this dinner and there was Dan Tobin. Oh, wow. And he's one of the owners. Of Dan Tobin and UAP, Urban Art Projects, an incredible outfit. Yeah, so Carla sort of nudged me 
with her elbow and said, that's Dan, he owns UAP. Anyway, at the end of the night, I, I went up to him and introduced myself. And he said, I said, oh, my name's Polly Bull. And he said, I know who you are, you're a rock star. Um, and of course, that I was in love with him after he'd said that. And then, um, <laughs> then uh, I said, oh, I need to get advice. I, you know, I'm wondering if you could do this, you know, can I ring you? And he looked at me and said, oh. At this point, you just need a frame, right? Just a frame, but a, a kind of aluminium serrated sort of lenticular frame and he said oh no why don't you come and visit the foundry and we can talk about it there and I went well where are you oh in Brisbane I went well how far away is that so anyway I went there we never talked about the frame and he just said you are creating sculpture and photographing it and we want to take the sculpture from the photographs into the real world would you be interested so it's just, and that all, again, happened by chance. Incredible. Because you were here on Bundjalung Country. That's yes. why it happened. Exactly. With Carla Dickens. And then I spent a few days at UAP in Brisbane making the beginnings of this sculpture. And we've created one called Bod, which now is going to go giant sized for Marfa in Texas which is an arts sort of little art town in the middle of nowhere in Texas and it's going to be put in the desert there so giant size and how big hopefully eight foot might be a little bit less than that but it's it'll look big because it's like a big volume have you seen the... I've seen the maquette, the, well, the, the yeah. earlier version from yeah. the Melbourne, Melbourne Art Fair. That's the one that's going to be made big. And then after the festival here, I'm going to go to Brisbane and we're going to make more bods. And from the 3D photograph, then they're creating a cast. You're creating a cast with UAP. And then you're casting moulding essentially these morphs into from aluminium they pour the aluminium liquid aluminium into the mold and then it sets so it'll be amazing to see the big one so marfa i don't know the history of marfa but i think it's the 60s or 70s and it's basically a really famous art town that artists live in and it's apparently very prestigious so to have a sculpture being shown there, it's next May um, at Marfa Invitational and they're going to put it in the desert. When you started doing the more photos, you're working with stockings, I understand, stuffing them with what, foam uh, and whatever material you could not find. Not foam. Well, you can stuff them with different things, but I use like cushion stuffing. I mean, I can show you the actual stockings oh here. Oh my God, can I have a look? Yeah. Get them out. They're in the suitcase. Yeah, they're in the suitcase. Oh gee whiz. Um, you are literally diving into that massive suitcase. That's why it's so massive. Oh, so this is the bodysuit. It's a bodysuit. So what's it made of? Very thin um, mesh. Right. Slightly fetish, isn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> It is slightly fetish. <laughs> and, you know, uh, sometimes I'll cut, like, bits out. 
to make it even more fetish. Oh, my Lord. It's always got to be a bit rude. Very Lee Bowery, yeah. Everything's always got to be a bit rude. Oh, gotta have, it's got to be a bit rude. Got so this is an entirely, rude. this is like a Zentai suit. It's yes, complete covering. It, yes. Yeah, but it's, it's Except it's see-through. See-through and kind of a skin colour, like an ochre uh, light skin colour. And then these are the stock. And don't tell me. I mean, what do they use these for? You can buy them online. Oh, my God. It's like a giant bag yes. made of stocking material. Like they're like sausage casings, giant sausage casings, and then, and then I haven't got the stuffing with me because we're going to just get that. No, you just buy that local. Yeah. So, but, 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 but see, why? and they get filled up, and then you know you put their they can become legs or. This is a very legs. long, rectangular, oblong kind of shape. Very, very long. It's like over six, what six foot. And it's stretchy material. It could yeah, be. Yeah, really stretchy. Has the surreal always interested you? Well, abstraction and surrealism are two of my probably main interests. And surrealism, in the sense that it's it's um, fantastical, but it's also, I think, what my work has, which a lot of people have started to talk about now is you're looking at something but you're not necessarily knowing what you're looking at. So you've kind of got to keep looking at it. You've got to figure it out. So it's quite cerebral, even though there is a humanity in my work, but it's quite a cerebral kind of um, experience because things are not easily recognisable. And I think I, I haven't set it... I haven't consciously set it up like that, but that I recognise that now in my work and it's what I actually enjoy in my work. It's almost like there's surprises there that... or puzzle. It's like puzzles. So when you're, when you're working with that model, you're having, you must be having a really fun time just, like, creating all these... It is, but it can be very sensory depriving of the person in the suit so it can be quite scary and if it's hot it's very hot when you cast the body there can also be yeah. a lot of sensory deprivation involved yes. in that except this is soft but it's still very because i usually cover the eyes and the mouth like i also put um a mask on like a mask over the top not, yeah i use here where are they here oh they're socks but look, they've got you. We've got. Wow, you've just got bags and bags of them, like little. These are wig caps. What you'd wear on your head to cover your hair before you put yeah, on a wig. So yeah. I put them all in. Well, probably with the if they've got the Zentai suits on, they don't need these. But what I'll do is I stuff them with stuffing, stuffing, and then I sort of twist them around, go like that, and that's got stuffing in it, and then that creates a mouth and oh, eyes. Yeah. So they've got a lot of, they're covered, they can't see or really breathe very well. Not as playful as we might imagine. No. Don't you? It's, not, it's not laugh, you know, laugh a minute, is it? <laughs> it's not a laugh a Okay. But, for the model. Yeah, of course, but you're it's having... It's a laugh a minute for me. <laughs> How much are you interested in interrogating gender in, in your artworks? Is it part of your thinking process or just one element or do you disregard it altogether you're not thinking are these I'm forms really genderless thinking about gender they're ungendered they're genderless these forms 
They are, but I do have bosoms and penises sometimes. Well, probably quite a lot. So they're not, they are like, in terms of the appendages, they do have them, but I don't necessarily identify them as male or female. Usually they're a mix of, if I'm going to do it, I do it, they're like hermaphrodites or they're like both at the same time. I feel like I should have been doing sculpture all along, really. It's come so naturally to me. I love it. Like, I needed to change things up. The whole photography thing is almost creatively limiting for me. And I feel like, as I said, I should... Well, I was doing sculpture, but I was just photographing it. You know, at my age, it's given me, you know, another good life like in terms of my creative life it's I feel reinvigorated so and I've got you know so many ideas like they just keep coming 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 and I think also because you know I had a child late Louis I was 42 he's now only 21 and he's at college so now it's all systems go you know and I've now got this new outlet creative outlet which I'm loving in love with so you know I can keep going and in terms of public art I mean I haven't done any public art submissions or anything but I could you know I'd be interested in doing public art but at the moment I'm just focused on getting sculpture into the real world you know I've had such a good time talking to you and thank you for Bringing out the, the bits and bits and bobs. Yeah, thank you. I love your glasses. <laughs> They're so great. I sat on them and I had to go back to the to the, um, to the optician to have them straightened out. They're still not straight. You know. Oh, they so good. Polly, thank you. Thank you. Polly Borland's foray into public art, fabricated by the creative geniuses at UAP, will be unveiled in Marfa, in Texas, in May. And Polly has been out here for Art Byron, curated by Carla Dickens. This is The Art Show, Daniel Browning with you. Contemporary jewellery is something you might associate with rarefied spaces, high fashion or white cube galleries. Of course, if you listen to The Art Show, you'll know there's a lot more going on in the scene here in Australia, where jewellery is an art form that can tell compelling stories. This year, 11 Indigenous artists and designers from Victoria took part in the Black Design Initiative, an intensive jewellery-making course and professional mentoring program developed with the NGV and RMIT University through the Koori Heritage Trust. The art show's Rosa Allen met two of the participants for the exhibition Black Layers, on site at the Koori Heritage Trust. I'm Lorraine Brigdale and I'm a Yorta Yorta woman. The work that's on show actually shows the different processes that came to the hero pieces, which are these solid silver plates here. So I decided what I wanted to work on was dilly bags. I do a lot of weaving. I'm a weaver, I'm a, I'm a multidisciplinary artist, but I, I do a lot of weaving and I I've been thinking a lot in the last two years or over two years now while we were on COVID of the impact of what happens in your life and things that happen to you that you don't have much control over. And for our people, 
um, our ancestors. They were just so strong and so resilient. So I wanted to find something that would be a symbol for that. I've used shields in the past, which was my area of working on before, which is what I'm wearing there. I've used shields and I thought I was going to go ahead and do that. But I quickly moved into dilly bags because they're such a lovely human thing and they've got a really beautiful movement and sort of uh, harmony about them, why they sit. So I started off using um, a fairly inexpensive material, which is binding wire, which is used in, in jewellery making. Is that, what, is that what this is? Yeah. That, that's binding wire? That's yeah. binding wire, yeah. So I started off making those because I wanted to and make something that had the look of a little sketch. And then through talking about what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, Lindy, who was one of the, the people in the, in the studio who helped us, she suggested that I could actually use them to make an impression on silver. And so then they've been used to, you've embossed those on the silver yeah. plates, right? Yeah. So this one right at the bottom there is the one that was between these two plates to make that impression. When they came out of the roller, I was so excited. I was, and, and Lindy was too. We were both going, oh my God, oh my God, this is... Created something I didn't know how to create. And then I really wanted to go back to that honesty of the binding wire. And so I decided for my part in the exhibition was I actually wanted to show everything, show how the process had happened and not just because... Why was that important? Well, it's really important because... If you think about Aboriginal people, they've always been people who've had to do craft for their existence. So they've made things that they carry their um, food in or carry their babies in or whatever it is that they use it for. They make these things with their hands. What I wanted to show was the difference between fine art that's made out of the highest quality silver and another form of fine art in, in its own way that's made out of really common inexpensive materials and the value that we put on them because the value that's been put on Aboriginal people's work has never been high. It's always been undervalued and devalued and a lot of the time not paid for and so I wanted to show those two different sides of it that it's some things are of no value in people's eyes and other things purely because of the material they're made of is high value so I think of this as the Aboriginal people and this is the non-Aboriginal people in a way and then you know the last thing is this dilly bag down the bottom this is like a 3D version and inside is a little piece of paper yeah it's got remember on on a piece of burnt paper inside it and it's that's what I'm giving myself goosebumps now um (laughs) Because it is to remember, um, it's to remember our people. And that, that's what I wanted to do with that. I really thought that was an important thing to have in here. So that's actually what a dilly bag looks like. It, it's a three-dimensional thing and it has things inside it. So that's, that's the last part of the, oh, the first part, depending on which way you look at it. And you know, you don't as you can hear, we're in a bit of a public space. Um, we're on the second floor of the Career Heritage Trust and the exhibition is being installed all around us. So we're in the final stages and it is gorgeous. So my name is Elijah Money. I'm a transgender brother boy. 
I'm a Wiradjuri guest living on Nam Wurundjeri lands. I live in Fitzroy, classic. Um, immediately when I saw that it was a goldsmithing, silversmithing, jewellery course, I felt my tummy go all warm and fuzzy because my dad, my stepdad, is a jeweller. He has been making jewellery around me since I was a little kid. And so all of these different facets that, you know, I'd, I'd been a bit interested in, but I'd never felt ready to ask him to teach me how to use any of these tools and I'd just be kind of watching from afar and whatnot. This just felt like the perfect opportunity. So the teachers were Blanche Tilden, Laura Deacon, and then we were also really lucky to have the help of Lindy McSween. Tell me about the whole timeline, because you only get two weeks, right, in the workshop, and then you go home and then you come back for another intensive. I went into the course at 24. Hilarious. Oh, my God, I'm such a child. Um, We started that uh, towards the end of January, true. And so we did our two-week intensive, and then we went away for a few months, and there was a few workshops on the in-between. We would have catch-ups, do Zoom meetings, Um, And then over June, July, we had our last two-week intensive. And then from that period, I think we had about a month to really get our tushies into gear and have pieces ready to submit. I would wear it. The best way to describe to wear it, I would say, is like a scarf. There's a a long necklace slash scarf of of small sterling silver plates connected with nine carat gold links nine nine carat gold links and on each plate there's a word so the whole the whole piece is a is a kind of jewelry poem so it's a 25 word piece because i'm just a little baby at 25 so much of the work that Indigenous artists are expected to do is, is so trauma-based and very. I think that that can kind of lend itself into being a bit trauma porn and for a settler colonial audience and that's something that I'm very actively trying to move away from. Well, I wanted to curate the words to highlight my life up until now um, and to share the importance of family to me um, and so that's why this piece is called Namesake. It speaks to my black last name, which is Williams, um, my biological last name, which was Makem, but has been a bit, played with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek play on words, make me, um, and my current last name, which is my mother's maiden name, which is money. So by having all of these facets, I think I wanted to share the intersectionality and the complexity of identity while also having it be very fragile and gentle and not very harsh but soft to the touch and then immaculately kind of pieced together with this gold so that family is our connection right and so with this connection gold is the most precious of metals because black and gold how deadly when i first started doing more indigenous um centered work it was when I finished working in the corporate world and I was working internationally as a designer and I 
I decided to come back to Australia and, and that I didn't want to be in that world anymore. And so then I had to reinvent what I was about. And I used to be doing watercolour painting because I could do that wherever I was. If I was travelling, I could do it in an airport or if I was filling in time, I could always do that. And so I was doing that and then I started to um, research how to make watercolour paint and what were the European traditions to do that and, you know, what were the things that went. So gum Arabic, for example, is a really important part of making watercolour paint. And so I researched all that and learned the recipes and worked out how to do it and then went out and started gathering minerals and ochres and experimenting, grinding and doing all of that hands-on stuff. I was also learning a lot about my Aboriginal family and meeting members of the family that we hadn't met before and revisiting about my grandmother and the story of her life and why she was removed from Aboriginal people. She lived her entire adult life with no contact with family and it's a sad, sad story but... um, to, to give respect to her, everything I've been doing all along has... I've got a little photo of her in, in my studio and I've got photos of her all over the place. And uh, it's interesting because one of the photos, which you think at first is the same photo, but then you really you look at the two of them and you realise one of them's been touched up to make her look like a white person and the other one is an original photo of her looking like she did look. Making things from jewellery, sorry, making things from silver or or, or brass or gold or whatever it's going to be um, is definitely part of what my, I think of my like stable of different works because I do so many different things and I haven't got any ideas about what I'm going to do next but I know that I will. I've got my little table all set up ready to do the work and um, it's really nice to have another different thing that I can do that I know I can do well and I just think for all of us in this thing that our opportunities will be different from now on because of what we've done. So that's been really awesome. Yorta Yorta artist Lorraine Brigdale and Wiradjuri artist Elijah Money. The Contemporary Jewellery Exhibition Black Layers is on at the Curry Heritage Trust in Fed Square in Melbourne. When you hear the name Jackson Pollock, what comes to mind? Probably drips and splatters is what you think, or maybe the face of Ed Harris in the biopic of the artist. No doubt influenced by a famous image of Pollock, athletically swinging paints over a canvas on the floor. Well, the artist we're going to talk about next is remembered mostly in relation to Pollock. Her name is Janet Sobel. And she was the first to drip and to zag and splatter paint at the dawn of abstract expressionism. She lived in New York but was born in Ukraine. She was also a grandmother and a housewife whose painting career started when she was 45. How she's remembered says a lot about the problem of modern art. Art historian Sandra Zalman has peered into the splatters and brush marks of American abstract art and has written one of the few scholarly articles on the mysterious but influential Janet Sobel. Well, hi, Sandra. Welcome to The Art Show. So, Janet Sobel, what do we know about how and why she started painting? Um, Janet Sobel is a very interesting figure in American art history. She started painting after one of her sons went to art school. We don't exactly know why. Uh, One of the stories is that she, you know, her son was discouraged and he said, well, if you're so good at this, why don't you do it yourself? And she took up the paints. 
I don't know if that's true or not, but in any case, she decided to try painting when she was in her mid-40s. The result was really remarkable. So born Jenny Olashovsky? Yeah, she was born in Ukraine. And after her father was killed um, in an anti-Semitic pogrom, her family moved to New York. And then she married Max Sobel, who is also from Ukraine. Now, in an obituary published in the New York Times uh, only last year, which is strange because she died in 1968, her granddaughter described her as bursting with a flow of creativity that couldn't be stopped. She used glass droppers um, and tubes and was painting figuratively, as you say, um, images from Ukrainian art and folklore but then moved into but then moved into abstraction yeah and her move to abstraction is is you know i don't think we know exactly what inspired her but as as you know clement greenberg one of the most famous and well-known art critics of the time retroactively sort of wrote her into art history when he said that jackson pollock was influenced by her and really taken with her her all over painting. Well, Clement Greenberg, I mean, you couldn't get a better. <laughs> the fact that he went to a show <laughs> in the company of Jackson Pollock, you know, credited as the father of abstract expressionism, this, of this technique of dripping paint. And, and Clement Greenberg, mm-hmm. I mean, he's a giant of, of, of art criticism, of art history. Um, he saw her work in... When, do we, when did he see her work with um, Jackson Pollock? He says he saw the work in 1944, um, but he says he saw it at Peggy Guggenheim's gallery. And Janet Sobel was actually having a show at Puma Gallery, not yet at Peggy Guggenheim's gallery, though she did show there. Um, and it's, it's really interesting how sort of the history is written, because while Janet Sobel was very active in the New York gallery scene for about three years... Greenberg didn't write about her. Uh, He only wrote about her later in this revised uh, essay called American Type Painting, where he really was kind of trying to give an overview and a historical statement on the American, you know, the New York school. And that's when he says that he and Pollock saw Janet Sobel and that Pollock was very impressed with her all over technique. He He said this, um, they furtively, he and Pollock, furtively admired them. So kind of like a, like a guilty pleasure, furtively, secretly. Exactly. Yeah. And in some ways it would have been a secret because Greenberg, even though she was getting great reviews um, in the art press in 1944, 45, 46, Greenberg wasn't reviewing her. You know, he calls her a primitive painter. So he's already sort of categorizing her um in this particular way. Primitive, of course, meant self-taught, which she was. And then he also says, of course, that she's a housewife living in Brooklyn. So he alludes, you know, to her gender as well. You can almost hear the kind of condescension in the, the way he writes. Absolutely. And I, you know, he wasn't unique for his time period. A lot of the reviews of her work mention that she's a grandmother, um, meant, you know, so saying that she's older, that she's obviously a woman, and uh, also allude to the fact that she was Jewish as well. So they'll say, you know, they came to see the art, but they stayed for the gefilte fish. <laughs> why didn't, why do you think Greenberg didn't write about her at the time, but in that later revision? Uh, it's very interesting. I, I, my hunch is that he 
positioned Sobel in this way, as you said, furtively, but, you know, he's giving her this, this compliment, but as you mentioned, you know, it's kind of backhanded. She's primitive. She's a housewife living in Brooklyn. Um, and it diverts attention from this other painter, Mark Toby, uh, who also was painting in this all over way, which later became called white writing and things like that. And Mark Toby also had a show in 1944 and, was having a lot of success internationally, actually, in 1958 when Greenberg revised American-type painting, his essay, um, for publication. So I think there's a bit of a, a kind of competition between Jackson Pollock, or in Greenberg's mind, between Jackson Pollock and Mark Toby. And then he sort of throws Janet Sobel into the mix as another person who was also painting in this way. And it's all happening, you know, in 1944, within months of each other. You know, Toby has a show in, you know, March and April 1944, and Janet Sobel's show opens at the end of April in 1944. So it's a major moment for American painting. Um, a lot of people are kind of coming to this idea of all over painting and full abstraction. Um, and, and Greenberg is kind of rewriting sort of the chronology of how mm, that happened. It's fascinating. I wish I could ask, we could ask Clement Greenberg what he, <laughs> what he was trying to do. Was he trying to have, just make sure that he covered all the bases? I think he's, you know, trying to say these people were doing it, um, but Pollock, you know, he was the, he was the master. Right. Well, there's this also, of course, like the myth and, or the importance of originality for avant-garde painters. So I think it was easier in some ways to say, you know, that Sobel influenced Pollock um, was an easier kind of mm. rhetorical maneuver than to say that Mark Toby influenced uh. Pollock because Janet Sobel was an untrained painter. She was a woman. She fits into these kinds of categories that can also very easily be sidelined or even appropriated from, whereas Mark Toby was a trained painter. Now, by the time she had that solo at Peggy Guggenheim's gallery, her work was no longer described as being primitive. In fact, the quote is, no longer primitive, but an unconscious surrealist fantasy. But I want to know how, I want to know how she described her work. Oh, she, you know, she said she, she was a surrealist. She declared it at one point. She, she recognised her kinship with the ideas of surrealism. But... On the other hand, I don't think the American art critics or curators fully accepted that. There's a great interview, I think, on New York Public Radio where they said, she's modern, you know, she's no longer primitive. You know, she's about as primitive as a B-29. Surrealism also had a complicated relationship to the American avant-garde because there was this huge anxiety, if you will, about like defining what even was American art. And the surrealists were European. And so Sobel didn't fit quite readily into the category of, you know, outsider artist anymore. She wasn't quite a surrealist and she wasn't quite modern. So it put her kind of at the edges of all of these sort of emerging categories. And certainly never a member of the avant-garde. Right. Even though I think a, a great case could be made that she's as avant-garde as anyone. I have to say that the name Jackson Pollock uh, in Australia has particular connotations. Uh, when, the, when the National Gallery of Australia was set up, uh, established in the early 1970s, 
the Australian government um, paid an extraordinary amount of money, which doesn't seem like very at the time. Yes, it's a bit like um, um, yeah, it's kind of like that you know one million dollars uh, type of thing. It was it was a vast amount of money at the time, and there were huge protests. It became a very big public issue. Um, so that's why I, I guess there's an even even deeper, well, for me, of quite a profound interest in Janet Sobel because we're thinking about that and about what the kerfuffle had happened here about about Jackson Pollock and his kind of, you know, the muscularity and the machismo of this kind of artwork and the significance of a forgotten artist, a woman, uh, actually expressing herself in just the same way before him uh, takes on a different kind of resonance. Uh, well, for me personally, I'm just, I'm enthralled with this story. Absolutely. Actually, as a, as a side note, I show a documentary to my art classes that the Australian government made on the occasion of purchasing Blue Pools. And I just think it's it's fantastic. Of course, Janet Sobel isn't mentioned in that. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting rounding out of what was abstract expressionism. It was a lot more complicated than we think. And there were a lot more practitioners than just, you know, Jackson Pollock. You mentioned the press photo of, of, of Janet uh, painting on the floor of her studio, apparently, uh, with her, you know, quite lady shoes on, high heels and um, stockinged. Uh, it couldn't be more different to the kind of swagger we see, um, you know, when we see vision of, of Jackson Pollock in the studio. What does that image say to you, though? The image of, of, of Janet on the floor of her studio, which we, you know, clearly think is staged. But what does that image say to you? Um, I think it's trying to sort of present her as as a painter, you know, who has a sort of childlike innocence, right? That idea of like lying on your stomach is something I think of very much, you know, that children kind of do or even teenagers. Um but it's not, it, it couldn't be further from the Pollock uh, photos by Hans Namath, you know, where he's flinging the pain and he's vigorously and, and adamantly in the arena of his canvases. You know, she's sort of on the edge, even though, you know, her work is pictured all around her. Um, she almost seems like a just one more prop in that photograph. And of course, she's not in a, a studio. She's like in, a, in her living room. <laughs> I also think, though, that when these things happen, that the artwork of, say, someone like Janet Sobel, um, there are other examples of female artists whose work is subjected to extraordinary analysis, to the level of kind of scrutiny that if the things hadn't happened the way they happened in art history, they would not be subjected to the same intense debate. And I think that's a that's a mistake because we are judging them against really really harsh. We don't want to be we don't want to be disabused of this kind of truth that we're told about, you know, the male centered nature of, of 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 art and the male origin of art. So the works are subjected to a, a yeah a level of scrutiny which I think is really unfair. Yeah, as you mentioned, like uh, the machismo of the New York school painters is part of their mythology. And so if we have to make way for all of these women painters who were absolutely there and participating in the movement, um, you know, not just Janet Sobel, but many others, we really have to 
kind of recognize that there was so much more going on than what the sort of simple mythology of that moment would lead us to believe. And I think, you know, art history is more than ready for that kind of reckoning. Uh, And Janet Sobel is is such a key figure for that. She rose quickly to fame in the 40s and 50s and then pretty much vanished. You mentioned that she developed an allergy to paint. I mean, what an extraordinary... You know, and, and and moved to to New Jersey, left the scene. Extraordinary set of events, really. But the allergy to paint, to, I know this happens, but it seems an extraordinarily cruel thing <laughs> to happen to Janet Sobel. Yeah, it does. And, you know, so she started working in other materials like crayon, but obviously that doesn't have the same, I think, you know, visual impact as paint, especially the way she was painting. Um and the move to New Jersey was actually a result of the success of uh, her husband's business. So in some ways, it, it was good, um, but it did remove her further geographically from, you know, what was then the center of the art world in Midtown Manhattan. It does change our um, ideas of things. <laughs> when you imagine Janet Sobel walking into a Peggy Guggenheim, mm-hmm. you know, Peggy Guggenheim in one of her one of her outrageous moo-moos or something. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Janet, Janet Sobel on, on her, in her high heels and her stockings. And right. We, we, it's, 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 you know, often, often art history is what we, it's what we produce in our imaginations as much as anything else, as much as, as, much as what we read. Our way of seeing the past is so, in many, in many ways, so just fallacious and wrong. Um, yeah. She's right there. She's right there at the centre, isn't and she? And just seeing, you know, the Surrealists were invited over for dinner and they accepted the invitation, you know? So all of these people are kind of circulating in this way um, and are very open to the idea that art at that moment, you know, could it was expanding in all directions. Sandra, thanks so much for being my guest here on The Art Show. It's fascinating to talk about uh, Janet Sobel. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Sandra Zellman from the School of Art at the University of Houston in Texas. She's the author of Consuming Surrealism in American Culture. Well, that's it for this episode of The Art Show. The program is produced by Rosa Ellen, thanks to RN Sound Engineers. If you want to get in touch, email us at theartshow at abc.net.au. And don't forget to follow us on the ABC Listen app. I'm Daniel Browning. I'll catch you next time here on The Art Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.